Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to Our Shelves, a podcast where writers from the legendary feminist publishing house Virago talk about their cultural worlds. We'll be diving into these writers' bookshelves, record collections, and recollections to discover what inspires them. Welcome to Heart Shelf, a podcast where writers from the legendary feminist publishing house Virago talk about their cultural worlds. We'll be diving into these writers' bookshelves, record collections, and recollections to discover what inspires them. I'm Lucy Scholes, and my guests today are Aminati So and Anne Friedman. Aminatu is a writer, interviewer, and cultural commentator who facilitates conversations around the most important issues of our time, and she lives in Brooklyn. And Anne is a journalist, a media entrepreneur, and contributing editor to The Gentlewoman. She lives in Los Angeles. But despite the geographical distance between them, since 2014, together they've hosted the popular podcast, Call Your Girlfriend. Every week they call each other and often a special guest to discuss work, politics, activism, feminism, health, pop culture and friendship because they're also the authors of the new book Big Friendship, How We Keep Each Other Close, which tells the story of their own friendship, both its ups and its downs, as well as looking more broadly at the importance of this often overlooked or sidelined relationship in our lives. Amongst the book's early fans are Hillary Rodham Clinton, who's rightly said that big friendship shines a light on how being a friend can be just as eye-opening, challenging and joyful as being a parent or a partner and how it can make you your best self. While Roxane Gay praised it for being a book that makes you want to reach out to your best, biggest friends to say thank you, thank you, thank you for walking in this world with me. Welcome to Harshelf Aminati Nan. It's a real pleasure to have you here today. Hello. Thank you so much for having us. Well, I have to say that I felt something similar to um, Roxane Gay while I was reading the book at different points in the narrative. I kept thinking I must message all my friends or I must, you know, get in touch and call them at this point, which I think is an amazing achievement for you to have um, done. So thank you for that. Um, and I think just to begin with, briefly, for anyone who hasn't yet had the pleasure of reading your book, could you explain what you mean by a big friendship? When we started thinking about big friendship, so much of the, you know, really the thrust for writing the book was realizing that we did not have an adequate vocabulary for talking about what we mean to each other. We are, we are friends, we are best friends. And there is still something so infantilizing even about that, um, about that word, you know, a BFF or a bestie or a best friend, words that I have used and I love, 
there is just an expectation that that is, you know, a friend that you make at camp or someone that you met when you were younger, and it doesn't capture the full complexity of the bonds that Anne and I currently have. And we were really trying to get to what is a tier of friendship where you are really trying to say that the other person is someone who is bonded to you for a long time. You are both trying to be mature and generous and hearty with how you express your love to them. And also understanding that relationships between adults are complicated and can have difficulties, not that they are not um, navigable, but um, you know, I just think that in my youth, at least speaking for myself, I just really internalized the messaging that friendship was supposed to be easy. And so mm. much of so much of the shame and the real just like lack of maturity that I had about um, talking about friendship difficulties was rooted in this fact that I didn't understand that it was normal for friendship to be difficult. I think that when, you know, when when a parent or a spouse or a, par- a romantic partner to someone says, this relationship is work, or it's it's hard work to be a parent, or it's hard work to be to be a romantic partner to someone, it is a kind of um it's a shorthand that we all understand, you know, and we know not to dismiss it. And we really understand that yes, two people trying to do life together is very hard. And we were really trying to bring that same emotional heft and, and frankly, like also intellectual heft to the idea that um, friendship takes work, friendship is rewarding, and it really begs to be treated as every other bond that society says is important. Yeah, I think that's something that really came through for the book um, for me. And I think, you know, when I, when I said earlier that it's a relationship that people often don't sort of think of as being incredibly important and yet friendships can be some of the most stabilizing and sort of you know like important relationships in one's life they can give you something that romantic relationships or you know family ties can't and they can be there for you for years and years and years Um, and it's something that I think a lot of people struggle to articulate or we struggle to understand and think of them as being that significant right yeah, and also you see that as a um, you see that reflected in the way that we talk about how people spend their time, particularly at um, in a phase of adulthood where people are crunched as caregivers, uh, maybe for elderly relatives or for young children, um, when they are really busy in their jobs. Um, it's kind of accepted that friendship is going to be the thing that falls by the wayside, maybe just temporarily. Um, and I think we're also really trying to question that um, and and really make people think about, well, why did I make that choice? And is that truly reflective of who is emotionally supporting and feeding me? Or is that something I've just kind of been told is the acceptable trade-off? Talking more broadly, I suppose, I'm quite interested to find out um, how much of an impact you think each of you have had on each other's cultural landscapes, because that's what we're going to be talking about a bit more today, digging into. Um, and do you think that, I mean, do you have the kind of the relationship, are you in the habit of recommending things to each other, whether it's TV shows, books, podcasts, and the like? Do you know each other's tastes quite well? How, how do you both feel about that? You know, I think that so much of what bonded us in the beginning is that we really, you know, we really understood very quickly that we were on, um, you know, we, we write in the book that we were on the same wavelength about a lot of things, mm. just culturally, emotionally, intellectually, we just share a lot of interest. And 
I think that with hindsight now, um, we what we were not understanding at the time, and we write about this as well, is that we were actually creating that wavelength together. And that there is just a way that as friends, you influence each other in ways that are just, they're just so hard to to actually quantify and put your finger on. You know, I, there are now stories that I, I think I tell myself where it's hard to know, like, oh, did Anne tell me this? Or am I, you know, who is the originator of, of this mythology in our friendship? Or who is the person that first recommended this book? Or who is the person that, you know, told me I should watch this TV show? Or why am I wearing this outfit that I like so much? I think that um, there are there are just so many ways that it it is so it's hard for me to even to say you know because I I think that we have influenced each other so much. I will say though that as someone who um, before I knew Anne read her work and just was a huge fan of everything that she made and still um, you know I'm still someone who reads her work and I read her newsletter and I all of the things that she recommends. She is one of my favorite curators. So anything that she, you know, ever says like, oh, this is something that has captured my attention uh, is something that I know is important for me to look into. And so, um, you know, I, I think that in that regard, I am especially really lucky because the person that is my friend is also someone who just curates um, wonderful writing and watching and listening lists. And so, for that alone, it you know I don't have to do a lot of work. <laughs> That's high praise, Anne. <laughs> oh, I feel the exact same way, and I also feel that it is almost too limiting to have this conversation about Aminatu's influence in my life to talk only about culture because it is one hundred percent true that if she is rereading a book that's been out for a long time, or if she is really excited about a new author, or um, if she is you know, raving about a movie that she saw early, like, I have to see it. Um, And, you know, particularly when it comes to culture, she is always ahead of me. Like, this has been true since the earliest days of our friendship, where we went to go see the Beyonce camp classic film Obsessed in in the theater together. And she had already seen it twice, maybe? Like, truly, like, you know, truly always, like, from since day one has been light years ahead of me. And so I really feel like I am the one who is culturally scrambling to keep up. Um, but also, she has really taught so much about how to live well and how to live better. And um, some of that is true on a level of, like, okay, like, what exfoliator should I be using in the shower? And, like, what is the, what you know, what are the, like, um, most comfortable leggings I should invest in, like things like that. But it's also true on this level of um, how do I want to be a person in the professional world? You know, like Amina is someone who really taught me that like giving a really nice, but like maybe low dollar follow-up gift to someone who you've done business with is just like a practice that is a really good practice to have. Like, you know, she is someone who is really always thinking about the people in her life in this top of mind in concrete way that I have found myself mimicking. And, um, and so, yeah, it is really too, too weak to categorize it as cultural recommendations. It really is um, the way she lives has so strongly influenced the way I live my own life. Anne Friedman, don't make me sappy. <laughs> it's so lovely hearing you both talk about each other. 
<laughs> but to take it back to kind of culture just for just for a little bit um because I do think also and I'm, I'm sure this sort of you know just runs off what you've both been saying but there's something so invigorating about having um like sharing things things that you love whether it's a book or you know um a film that has been really important to you but being able to share that with a friend who sort of also gets it being able to introduce you to them these are things that help reinforce friendships I think and, and help sort of reinforce um you know the, the mythology of the friendship like you were talking about uh so perhaps in the questions today you will get some uh, perhaps you'll already know the answers and perhaps you'll kind of both learn new things it'll be interesting to see by the end of it but let's start with um finding out exactly what you're kind of reading like right now so which books are on your bedside table at the moment well uh you know i i am in this phase where i am mostly just uh rereading a lot of things that have been really important to me. Anne always joked um, when we were writing a book that every book that you read when you're writing a book is the best book you've ever read in your life because everyone else does it better than you. <laughs> and uh, that feeling that feeling was very, very true. But once the book was done, I was really excited to go back to books that I had been avoiding because so many of them were centered around friendship. And I just, um, you know, I just like did not want to be super influenced by that or to just, you know, crumple into nothing of a person thinking that I would never, I would never be able to match that. But a book that I have always enjoyed that I am, uh, that is currently on my nightstand and my, um, to be clear, the books on my nightstand are always books that I am actively reading. So they, um, if they're on the nightstand, they get read and then they get moved immediately. But currently on the nightstand is uh, Barbara Pym's Quartet in Autumn, which is just uh, like a really heartbreaking, amazing, you know, like 1970s London, older people um, story that I've always been captivated by. And I had frankly kind of forgotten about. And as we were writing, a lot of um, a lot of it was coming back to me. And I was really excited to to pick it up once the once the book was done and I had time to read again. And it's just such a lovely read at this stage of life because I think that I am starting to understand a little bit more about the complexity of that book and the texture of the relationship of the friendships in it. And I hope that as I read it over the years and as I get older, it's something that means more and more to me. Um, and the other book that I am currently reading, which will be out later this summer, is um, Zadie Smith's Intimations. And that is stretching a different part of my brain and my and my heart, really, because I it's definitely the first book that I have read that was written in lockdown. And I think maybe it's the first book written in lockdown about lockdown. And um, and it's just bringing up a lot of feelings for me, you know, in, in the sense where the best part of like one of the one of the best things about literature is that it connects you to other people. And so to feel connected to someone else in this once in a lifetime global pandemic is, you know, it both feels really good and is also really, really devastating just knowing that someone is finally putting to words a lot of the dread and the darkness and the uncertainty and anxiety of what is going on. And, um, you know, and Zadie is a brilliant writer. So there is just so much there that I just keeps rattling in my brain. And, um, you know, so 
I think it's fair to say that I'm in a I'm in a very dark reading place right now, but um, it feels it weirdly feels very appropriate. And what about you, Anne? Are you uh, are you similar in that you have uh, are you definitely reading the books that are right by your bed, or do you keep sort of big piles there and pick and choose between them? It's interesting. My bedside reading tends to be things that I am, you know, parceling out slowly and reading maybe a little bit every night before bed or something that I have already read and I know I'm going to want to return to as I wind down my brain for the day. Um, if I'm reading a book like for the first time, I tend to like tote it with me all around the house or like, you know, in better times out into the world. And it will sometimes make its way to the nightstand, but it's not a fixture. And I don't really have a pile there that's like to read. So my nightstand right now, um, what I am returning to again and again is Samantha Irby's Wow, No Thank You, which is a delightful essay collection. I have sent it to so many friends. Um, It's sort of perfect for my personal pandemic attention span, which is not the best. Um, not the longest, but um, really still wants to feel that sense of connection that Aminati was talking about. Um, and and this is a book I think I've read through all the way, mm. at least twice, possibly three times. And um, it is it is the perfect thing to pick up and just kind of lighten the mood if I feel like it has been a, a rough day. Um, Samantha's prose is like a delight, a true delight, as if you are picking up the phone in a no effort way to talk to a friend and, um, and just get like a few incredible anecdotes about the, um, the things that have happened in her day. So, um, so that is there. Um, and for a long time, uh, Emily V. Wilson's translation of the Odyssey has been on my bedside table. This is a book that Aminatu and I both became obsessed with, um, I don't know, a year and a half ago, shortly after I think it, it came out in paperback. Um, and it is, it is really the perfect thing for me to pick up when I am needing a different kind of slowdown. I can read one or two books of it at a time and, um, and really delight in some of the minor word choices that she's made. And there is also something about mythology um, and the farawayness of it all that is really a nice alternative to, say, opening my phone and reading some more um breaking news you know uh it really is the the antidote for me in a different way and and that has really been on my bedside table for quite some time um and i i don't necessarily read that chronologically either i just kind of pick it up so um and that book was a gift from a different friend and i think um one amazing thing about the gifted book is that it really it really sort of jumps ahead in the queue for me when i know that a person i care about has hand selected something and sent it to me with a nice note I just think okay you know maybe you know you probably know something I don't and I'm going to get right into this so that book is also special for that reason yeah that's really lovely have you read the whole thing already or are you just deciding to jump in and out as you as you feel like it I think I have made it all the way through um I my first read was a straight read and I've just kind of been very impressive dipping back in Mm. I mean, it's it's really well done. I mean, when when um, I bought a copy for another friend and when I was at um, checking out at the bookstore, uh, a woman standing behind me was like, oh, wow, big reading. You know, she was kind of, she was kind of like, you know, waggling her eyebrows at me because I was buying a copy of the Odyssey. And I told her 
that it is it is extremely readable. Um, and I really highly rec- recommend Emily Wilson's translator's note um, about why she translated this version specifically to be read by modern readers. Um, but yeah, it is a delight and it is not a, um, a sort of academic slog like I experienced the Odyssey the first time around. Do both of you find that you're reading, obviously at the moment during the pandemic, I think we're all reading slightly differently. There's been lots of people talking about this, whether it's escapism or not being able to concentrate. Um, But sort of even prior to the pandemic, do you both find that the reading that you have on your nightstand, the stuff that you turn to at the end of the day, is something that is separate from the day-to-day life? Do you prefer to kind of read something um, that takes you out of the everyday moment before you go to sleep rather than reading the Twitter feed on your phone or something like that? Yeah, I think um, it's definitely something that I am struggling with. I think, uh, you know, in my in my regular life before the pandemic, in the before times, I reading is really divided into reading for work and reading for pleasure. And um, even something, things that I had to read for work never quite felt like slogs because so much of my job is like reading in order to be informed to interview someone or reading, um, you know, reading because I need to figure out some nerdy detail about something for myself. What I have found in the pandemic is that the work reading is not very different, but the reading that I do for pleasure has definitely been really impacted because I, I am not deriving a lot of pleasure from reading currently. It's, it's, um, I feel that I I find that it has been adding to my anxiety a lot to just be left to my own, um, you know, like left in my own thoughts. And so one thing that has definitely changed for me in the pandemic is that I am listening to a lot more audiobooks. And I find that that has been like very soothing to the brain because I'm not having to do the work of reading and thinking at the same time. And there has been something just like very, very soothing for me about staying still for an hour or more at a time and having someone else read to me. And particularly with fiction, this has been true. So, you know, I think we're all finding out a little bit more about ourselves and how um, how this moment is changing us. But, you know, reading is something that I enjoy doing, even when the thing that I'm reading is not um, is not fun and being um feeling that I am losing that that feeling of just, you know, enjoying the enjoyment of reading has been something that's been really, really hard for me. It's interesting. I've heard quite a few people say that they're turning to audiobooks in a new way now. I wonder if there's got to be something about the comfort of being read to you. Maybe it reminds people of being younger children. I don't know. It'd be fascinating to kind of look into this in more detail. For me, it just feels like there's another human in my house. You know, I live alone. I spend a lot of time alone. And I think that there is just something about a stranger's voice, a thing that just seems very far away right now. Um, You know, are we ever going to meet strangers again? Who knows? Um, And the experience of the audiobook has frankly been, it's been really positive. I, uh, I always, I always joke that listening to audiobooks is not the same as reading, but at this rate in the pandemic, I would have listened to more books than I have read myself. And I have greatly changed my mind about um, the experience of listening to audiobooks. It is a thousand percent the same as reading a book. Uh, do you listen to audiobooks as well, Anne? Um, occasionally, I I do, but I, I don't know. I, I actually am having, I had an experience similar to... Um, what Aminatu is describing in the first weeks of 
the pandemic. Um, but I have kind of, I, I guess, normalized to my to my regular reading habits, which, you know, like her, include a lot of reading for work or to prepare for interviews that we're doing for our podcast um, or for things that I'm mm-hmm. writing. And um, but but I don't I it, it, at this point, I think I've really kind of come around to some kind of normalization, whereas, you know, in the past, I would be doing a lot of my reading um, on airplanes or <laughs> while I am kind of between things out in the world. And now um, now that reading happens in more unbroken hours because I am I'm stuck at home. But I, I I do think that there has been a leveling out with my attention span and um, my bedside table and nighttime wind down reading, notwithstanding um, my I, I, I weirdly reading is one of the few things that feels normal <laughs> to me in this moment. Um, reading books and talking about them has has not changed. Um, and talking to friends about what we're reading has has not changed. I really want to make a plug for the Circe audiobook, a book that I have read multiple times and really enjoyed by um, Madeline Miller. But the narrator for this book is incredible. And I want her to read everything to me. So if you have not listened <laughs> to Circe, Anne and Lucy, I cannot recommend it enough. Okay. So maybe moving away from books for a second, is there a particular article or even a podcast? I don't know how much of your much of your downtime is spent listening to podcasts, or it might be a bit too much like your day job in a way. Um, but is there an article or a podcast that's made you think in particular recently? Um, Anne, let's start with you on that. Um, yeah, you know, one article, uh, essay from the past month or so that has really stuck with me is uh, a piece in New York Magazine's Vulture by Lauren Michelle Jackson about anti-racist reading lists, which, um, you know, have been very much making the rounds right now um, because of current events in the U.S., even though all of these books have been out for quite some time and available to people to read for months and months, if not years. And she really kind of um, asks some questions about why, what is it about the list that is so compelling in this moment? And are the people who are sharing these lists or clicking on them, white people in particular, actually following through, reading, engaging with the subject matter of these books? Or does it kind of feel like uh, a a more of a signal of doing something than actually doing the thing? Um, and, And I just, I found it really helpful. You know, sometimes when you when you see a trend on the internet or when you kind of notice something happening around you and you think, okay, well, you know, I've seen that six times, but you don't take the next critical step yourself. Reading an essay that really is like, hi, I've taken that critical step and I am asking these questions about um, what these lists are for. And, and that, that is really um, a great service, I think. And um, this is a very well-crafted essay that I keep thinking about as a lot of these titles sell out and then the kind of next wave news about them has been the hordes of uh white people who have ordered these anti-racist books are mad that they're taking a long time to fulfill um because they have only now collectively um gotten interested in reading them so i don't know i um it is it is at this point you know a month old essay but some of the um, questions she asks in it have also been great sources of self-interrogation for me in terms of talking about something versus 
actually absorbing the lessons and practicing myself. Yeah, that's a really good essay. And I was sort of interested and intrigued by the fact there were, I sort of expected I would see more responses like that, more people kind of engaging with what is, what are we actually doing with these reading lists? You know, are people following through on them? And I could, I could have just missed it, but that's one of the few things I've, I've seen it on the subject actually. Yeah, it was perfectly well-timed. And, um, you know, it's also very satisfying when, um, someone asks a question that feels just so timely, but also provides like a really satisfying interrogation of the issues at play, right? Like, you know, because sometimes, you know, I'll see things and I'm like, yes, that's the question I'm asking too. And I'll click through and, you know, there's not much of a there there. And there is a mm. lot of there there in this essay. And Amanati, what about you? What have you been uh, reading recently that's made you think or listening to something recently that's made you think? Um, there is a recent op-ed in the New York Times by um, Mariam Kaba, who is an organizer against criminalization, who is someone who I have followed for a long time and been really, really inspired by. Someone who has been, has really shaped my ideas about everything I think, you know, about organizing against criminalization, really. And and crime and defunding the police and abolishing the police, a debate that is really, um, you know, raging right now in the United States and a possibility that is, um, that is finally here. But she has this op-ed in the New York Times um, that the headline made me so happy. The headline is, yes, we mean literally abolish the police. And for someone who cares uh, as much about words as I do and precision, and I'm so nitpicky about a lot of things, this just brought so much um, happiness and delight to me because, you know, um, someone like Mariam Kaba, who has been organizing really her whole life and has been, you know, doing this work of um, highlighting everything that is wrong with um the way that American society criminalizes, frankly, just too many people, she has just been, you know, she has always been precise in what her vision is. And a lot of us have come on later to start to understand what all of these topics are. And I think that now that it's a conversation that is very much in the mainstream, a lot of the, you know, newer to adopt people, newer to adopt the stance people keep having fights over semantics. You know, like, what do we actually mean when we say abolish the police. And I had heard so many people say, oh no, it's, you know, like it's a concept. We are still, we're going to abolish the police, but we're still going to have a police force. And, you know, and there was just something so deeply satisfying about hearing someone say, no, no, we mean literally, we are going to abolish the police. Some of us have been, um, you know, and, and hearing her say that, she just has a bigger imagination for what the world can be and for what she really means. And I think that when I think about a lot of, of racial justice, um, a lot of racial justice issues, especially ones that we're finally talking about, I think that it's really worth remembering that the reason that even I can have a vocabulary for it or I can care or I can feel that my voice matters is because people like Mariam Kaba have been doing that work for decades you know, and really have been in the trenches of um, thinking through what the policy implications are and thinking through what the messaging implications are and really what a different future we can have as a society. And, you know, words mean things, um, even though we live in a world where people will just 
casually say things and never quite um, never quite stand by the meaning of the words that they're using. It was just so um, it's been like really challenging and really wonderful to have her articulate this in a way that um, I think is really accessible to a lot of people. And I think also just has it has a lot of teeth, you know, hearing her say we are going to abolish the police. That is the only result that is acceptable and is the only result that you should be asking for if you say that you are serious about um, about being an abolitionist. And I just I loved also that, you know, it it ran in as a New York Times op-ed, something that a couple of years ago I would have never thought was possible. And, you know, for as much as we are living in this really just very bad pandemic, it's been so inspiring to me to see people just be really rigorous and be really consistent about a lot of the, a lot of the, um, a lot of the politics that they have. And so this was just, I, it's been rattling in my head like for, for weeks since it's been there, because I think that it was just a reminder to me that yes, the world is falling apart, but we, each of us still has to keep doing the work that we say we are here to do. And, and we have to be really precise about what we mean. And it's really exciting to just, you know, for as much as everything is falling apart, it is really exciting to know that issues that were always um, thought of as really far out left actually can have a place in the center and can be treated as um, as like a possibility for a radically different future. So I am, I do not like the pandemic and I do not like coronavirus, but coronavirus has made me a prison abolitionist and uh, I'm here and I care now. <laughs> Well, maybe getting back onto the topic of escapism a little bit, um, I want to ask you both about a film or a song or a TV series that you've loved lately. Sure. I would say that my pandemic television has been fully dominated by uh, friendly, crafty competition television. So I would define this as... as <laughs> the exact opposite of what we've just been talking about. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I would define this as here to make friends TV, you know, where um, uh, many, many of these shows being like of the... Um, you know, BBC crafty variety. Um, I have to hunt for them on YouTube or use a VPN to try to get iPlayer to see some of these shows. So that is part of the <laughs> the the joy is that like when I actually find full season somewhere, um, I I'm like, oh right, it, it gives me something to strive for in the in the midst of this pandemic. And you know, I am a person who does not really do um, a lot of reality television in in the kind of um, you know, maybe Real Housewives vein, um, which, you know, I watch a little bit of that. I watch, you know, some like dating drama and that kind of thing. But um, but really what I love is like as a person who um, is from a craft culture, I'm like, yes, I have like a giant box full of fabric scraps in my house. Yes, I do own six types of glue. Um, yes, I, yes, I do have like, you know, weird vintage books about how to do various kinds of crafts that have fallen out of favor decades ago. Um, these shows for me are a really nice, um, a really nice form of escapism. I, um, it's, it's nothing more complex than that, which is times are, times are difficult and I can have this quest to find full series, full episodes. Um, and then once I fulfill my quest, I can 
just turn off my brain and watch people be pleasant together and create things. Like that is all I want in this moment. And it is bringing me a lot of joy. Is there a particular show that you'd recommend to our listeners? Like if you had to pick one of, of all the things you've watched? I mean, I don't think any of Or is that an impossible be- question? <laughs> Watching people hand build ceramic toilets on the Great Pottery Throwdown was a cathartic moment for me. Um, I think it was the second the second series of that show, which is, you know, several years old at this point. But um, but yeah, I mean, the the Pottery Throwdown, I mean, I also enjoy selling bee, I won't lie. But um, but 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 I have recommended to friends in the United States um, the Great Pottery Throwdown many many times. Okay, I haven't watched the pottery, the Great Pottery Throwdown. I'm a big fan of Bake Off, and um, I think Sewing Bee I've seen a bit, but pottery that sounds right up my street. I could definitely get on board of watching some of that at the moment. <laughs> oh, I truly, I truly love it, and that is a crafty skill I do not possess. So it has this like extra layer of joy for me in in watching how they do it. What about you, Aminatu? Are you a big fan of reality TV or are you, have you been watching something different? I mean, I am a ginormous fan of reality TV. Um, so it's surprising, actually, that I'm not going to recommend reality TV in this moment. <laughs> but, um, and I don't like, I think that, uh, you know, one of the things that I really wanted to explore with you this pandemic is uh, watching Escape to the Country and Escape to uh, the Continent that whole series, I think, is something that will bring you a lot of joy. So let's connect about that offline. I'll watch anything with the word escape in the title. <laughs> I know. Escape to the Country is amazing. It's like canonical, you know, like low drama British television show where um, there are no stakes and people don't even like they don't really even end up escaping at all. It's what I love about like British television is that there is no drama. It is just Xanax. What I am going to recommend today, honestly, are uh, watching all of the sex scenes in Normal People, because <laughs> here is here is my dirty like literature secret. If an Irish person writes it, I will read it every single time. It is my um, they are my uh, Caucasian people of choice, like to to just like read about and know about. So. On that level, on that level alone, all of Sally Rooney's work has been really delightful to me. I was really curious about the TV adaptation of just a book that had been, you know, I think has been really, really, really popular. And sometimes, you know, um, sometimes they get it really right. And some other times it misses the mark. And I have to say this adaptation is so wonderful, whether you're someone who has read the books or not, or you're someone who enjoyed the books or not. I think the TV show is its own thing. And I have been, uh, I don't know why I'm going to say surprised. I've just been really, I've had a lot of conversations with so many friends about um, the 10 sex scenes in this TV show, because they're all very horny and very sad at the same time, which I think is pandemic perfect. But I think that it's the first time that I have seen, it's the first time that I have seen on screen just captured a kind of, um, very palpable, very relatable, um, real way that young people have sex, you know, and there's just, they just do so much with saying so little in that TV show. And it truly, truly, truly a delight, a great exploration of boundaries. And, um, and I think honestly, like a corrective to a lot of the very uh, either like unhealthy sex that we see on TV or just not realistic. I think that 
for me at least, it is the first time that I can remember a TV show really exploring consent in a way that seems like not corny and um, and also just really, really, really powerful. And for and even for as much as I like loved reading the book, and I think I picked that up in the book, there was something about seeing it visually that just really drove that home for me. And it's been it's also just been fun to talk about with friends because you just uh, you know you just never know like where that conversation is going to go. And knowing that so many of um, you know like the the men that I'm friends with have also like picked up on like oh this is how you do consent like correctly or here is a good way to show this how everybody stumbles into um, into being a young adult for um, for that alone the character of Connell will always be very dear to me. No, I think you've precisely hit the nail on the head there. Like it, you know, it's a. I think it's a really interesting and very well done adaptation for lots of reasons. But for anyone who says, you know, consent is not sexy, or how do you kind of, you know, get that into your uh, the situation? Like, how do you ask for permission without sort of, you know, like killing the moment? I just think watch those sex scenes because it shows you how it can be done in a really kind of very realistic but also kind of incredibly kind of loving and still quite sexy way right oh very very sexy agreed um very sad but sexy I like the idea of it being the perfect pandemic watching because it's sad and sexy at the same time <laughs> so dark so dark um thank you to the great writers of Ireland we'll we'll take everything you send to us this year Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Our shells will be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Our Shelves. I'm Lucy Scores and I'm talking to Amanati So and Anne Friedman. We've asked you both to pick a photograph that you treasure. Um, and I'd like you to describe those to me and tell me a little bit about them. Anne, what's the photograph that you've chosen today? Um, the photo I picked is one that is from my teen years. It's a photo of me and one of my other big friends, Josh, who um, I think I met when I was 13 or 14. And I treasure this photo because it's from a pre-digital era when um, it was just not as common to have visual evidence of your friendship. Um, and it's also, I, I can't remember 
um, who took this photo. And I can't remember um, all of the circumstances surrounding it. But I, what is very clear is that it was for, um, for like a high school photography class. So it is this like kind of beautifully printed black and white photo that someone developed like in, in what was already then an outdated um, <laughs> uh, photography lab. And so I, I have hung on to it for a long time. And I, um, I don't know, there is the, for me and Aminatu, our friendship more or less coincides with having lots of photos of each other um, the ability to kind of call and see each other's faces at a moment's notice. And I love that. And I, I treasure many, many photos from our friendship. But um, the truth is, if my house were burning down, I would have to grab this photo of me and Josh because there would be no other place um, for me to find it again. That's a lovely story. What about you, Emanatu? What's the photograph that you've chosen? Um, I chose this picture that is new to me um, that my father sent me a while back, but that I had never seen before of um, my mother and I at the beach. My mom passed away when I was um, 20. Soon she would have been in my life for fewer years than I have been alive. And so I think that it's just I think about her all of the time and seeing this picture that I had never seen at all. Um, involving this like really lovely memory has been really touching for me. And, um, and the thing that is so interesting about that, um, that beach in particular is that unbeknownst to me, it was a beach that my family went to a lot when I was a kid and I had been going to as an adult and had never made the connection. And so when I saw the picture, I knew exactly where it was and remembered that pier so well. And it was just, um, it was just really, really incredible to, to know that um, that was a place that my mom enjoyed also. And also the picture is like very perfectly like 1980, you know, like 1985, 1988, like that era. So my mom's outfit is amazing. I am wearing these like tiny, tiny shoes. I don't know why people put shoes on children. It makes no sense. You have to keep buying them every six months, um, you know. Same thing with clothes. I feel like we should all just put babies in potato sacks until, you know, like age seven at least. But there is just something about how um, precious that whole scene looks and truly that I have no memory of it at all. And seeing it just like allowed me to have um, to be like connected to my mom that way. And it made me really, really happy. Is there a reason why you hadn't seen it until now, do you think? Is it just slipped through the cracks? Yeah, we, well, I um, live very far away from my family. And I think that we, we are like, we're people that my parents definitely have a lot of photo albums, like they're that era of human, but we, all of the pictures displayed in my parents' home are from like the two times that we maybe like sat down for family portraits. And so this was like in an old photo album that I had never seen before. My dad obviously has been hoarding them and keeping them to himself, but um now, uh, now that we are in, um, you know, we're in serious lockdown, every couple of days, he will just like take us, he will take a picture of a picture that he has. And it's been like truly the funniest part of the family group chat because, you, you know, I'm like, I am like mid thirties. I can't believe that he's waited this long to like show us these things. So it's actually something that could have been really painful actually is really, really delightful. And what about a novel that you will always recommend to friends? Anne, can we start with you? Do you have a go-to novel that you'll always tell people about? 
Um, yeah, I, I don't know about always, but in this moment, the sort of back catalog novel that I've recommended again and again is Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower. Um, and, and for those who devour that, which is most people, um, the follow-up Parable of the Talents. Um, I read these books last year, I think. Um, I, I don't have the clearest memory of the before times <laughs> timeline, but, um, you know, I had, I hadn't read them in a, in a really long time. And she is just extremely prescient, um, in terms of describing the full breakdown of everything in the United States, frankly, um, to the point where, uh, you know, the totally ineffective, dangerous autocratic leader, um, uses the slogan, make America great again. And, you know, this book was published in um, the 90s, the early 90s. So, um, so yeah, it is, um, that, that makes it a very timely read for people who are interested in kind of leaning in to, um, I would say, the, the mood of this moment. Um, but also it is, it is a book that is about resilience and it's about the choices that people have, even within a set of truly horrifying circumstances. And um, it's it's really about how to find within yourself what you really care about and are motivated by and be fed by that and led by that. And, um, and so that's the real reason I think I found myself recommending it so much. She is truly a, a writer who I just value more and more with each passing decade of my life. It's, I think you're so spot on with everything you've said about it. I I only read, um, actually, I read Parable of the Sower and Parable of the Talents very recently in the last few weeks for the first time. And I think, obviously, I'm that's my own fault in having not read them beforehand. But like you, I was sort of blown away about how prescient her image of what is now a very near future, like chillingly so. And I sort of, it feels kind of unfair that, I mean, Obviously, something like The Handmaid's Tale is a fascinating book, and there's been so much, um, so much emphasis on that in recent years. And I think you know it's all warranted. But I'm sort of surprised that Butler maybe hasn't had quite the same emphasis on her work because it's in, you know just so timely right now, like you're saying. Yeah, and it's very clear that um, she observed a lot of things that um, have always been at work in American society and American politics, and really took them to their natural conclusion, um, or, or maybe maybe a sadly expected conclusion, if not natural. And I think that um, that is, you know, yes, we can say prescient, but it's not like she pulled this out of thin air. I think she also really wrote um, in a way that was rooted in her experience as, um, you know, a Black woman in America. And I think that now when I think about what am I reading that is going to really inform me for the decades ahead, um, you know, there are a lot of reasons to read work by Black women, but that is that is that is in the list for me. Um, just like you know, she is really tapping into a present that will soon be a more widely felt future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a, I, I can't think of a better book to uh, to recommend for people right this moment. I think. Um, and what about you, Aminatu? What what is there? A, is there a novel that you always come back to in terms of recommending to people? Uh, That's a tough question because I go through phases with this. I think that the book that I have been giving out the most recently um, because it was given to me, um, actually it was given to Anne and I by our um, friend and editor, K. 
Carrie Fry, who is the loveliest human being in the world, truly. Um, she gave us a copy of Mama Day on one of the first times that we we met her when we started working on Big Friendship. Um, and it's this great novel by Gloria Naylor that I had read a really long time ago and really just hadn't thought about much since. And, um, you know, the fact that it was a gift, I think, is like a gift from someone who was really professionally involved with us was like is a memory that I'm going to cherish for a really long time because rereading it has been incredible. And anytime I'm looking for a gift for someone, you know, who either wants to read a book or someone that I just want to give something to, um, Mama Day has been the book that I just press in their hands. And it's, you know, it's the story that makes a lot of allusions to to Shakespeare, essentially. It's this tragic love affair between um, Coco and George Andrews. And it's set in, um, the book is like split between New York City and then also this fictional community where a lot of her other books are set. And there is just, I think that the, you know, the Shakespeare element is what has been really profound for me because I, you know, like everyone else, my understanding of what is canonical has just been really shaped by, um, you know, white men, essentially, um, their writing being really important and seeing, uh, like seeing and appreciating that black women can also be part of the canon and actually can, um, do amazing work that has allusions to King Lear and Hamlet and the Tempest, you know, even just naming the character Ophelia is, uh, something that I, I've just like really gone back to to understand where all of the gaps in my in my education were really like where all of the gaps in my in my literary understanding of what is important and who is important to pay attention to so this book I think um the voice is beautiful to me there is this just like dazzling sense of humor that runs underneath and knowing that it was given to me and to us really by someone who is really invested in our work and invested in us exploring our writing voices is something that I'm, you know, I'm always going to connect that to the experience of this book. And I also think, you know, like Anne said, just read Black women. Black women are amazing. Um, Black women have been doing the work for a long time. And, uh, you know, and it's just so rare that you have the experience of um, discovering something for the first time that has just been amazing all along, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that um, part of what I I always want to, you know, infuse my gift-giving practice with and my, um, my, my literary understanding with is furthering the work of people who have just been overlooked for really, really structural reasons. And it's, you know, the Gloria Naylor catalog is great and we should be teaching it in school and we should be reading it more. And she is someone who should really be at the forefront of um, conversations that we have about style and conversations that we have about genre. You know, the, the the folkloric elements of this book are just so good and so, um, so recognizable. And you just see how, you know, like male writers just, this is just like things that we take for granted about who is, who is made uh, to feel important in writing. And 
I like, I love that I have to remind myself of that all of the time. And one way that I can remind my community about how important it is to read people like Gloria Naylor is to buy these books and give them out. Well, you've completely sold me. I haven't read it yet and I'm going to get hold of a copy as soon as possible. So it sounds absolutely wonderful. Was it something that you were aware of as well, Anne, before it was recommended to you? Or was this your first time reading it? I was aware of the book and I had read um, Women of Brewster Place and uh, other works by Gloria Naylor, but I had not read Mama Day until um, Carrie gifted it gifted it to both of us. And I also love that experience of saying like, okay, you know, like this is a writer I remember liking when I read her work, you know, years and years ago. And for whatever reason, I didn't make my way through her whole catalog. And um, so I, I really, um, I also really enjoyed it and went back and read Women of Brewster Place um, after I read Mama Day. And there's something so nice about reading a writer's work back to back as well. And, um, so I really appreciated this as an invitation to do that and to go back and read things by her that I had um, that I barely remembered because it had been so long. And I just really want to connect to the experience of reading it. And, you know, probably the reason Carrie gave it to us is that it's a um, it's a book that has multiple voices in the novel. And um, and I went back to read through a lot of the reviews of it after I finished it and when the book came out and it was so interesting because so many of the people appreciated the, you know, that she was able to just fully realize um, telling the story from multiple perspectives and having all of these voices and it was not confusing at all. And in fact, it just added so much more. But, you know, it was interesting to me that the one kind of a not good review of this book was in Ms. And, oh God. Uh, <laughs> and, but that just it made me really happy, you know, to be like, okay, like, here's how, uh, here's how people are writing reviews in 1988. And, you know, and, and the voices, the voices problem, you know, they're like the voices conundrum in the book is something that we had to contend with a lot in, um, in how we chose to write Big Friendship. And so there was just, um, there was a lot of comfort there for me saying like, okay, other people are trying this and, you know, sometimes it's well received and sometimes it's, it's not well received, but uh, stick to your vision and see, you know, and like figure out the thing that you're trying to do. So I just really, um, I really liked um, that connection to our, to our book. It sounds like a very well thought through gift as well, it, uh, that it ticks all the right boxes and, and, you know, very relevant to what you guys have been doing. Um, and this question will delve a little bit probably into a sort of in, into your back catalogue of reading, not necessarily stuff that you're reading right now, though it can be. Um, but is there a particular book or book that, that you've read that has really made you think about feminism in a different way or in a new way over the years or something that was the kind of, if you had to say you had a sort of defining feminist text in your life, what would you, what would you say that was? I mean, I think Anne and I have the same answer to this question of what is a book that we are re-exploring um, about feminism. So uh, sure, um, I have been really contending with and um, like rethinking a book that I read really, really early on my um, in my baby feminist years, as I call them. It's Bell Hooks' All About Love. And I think, you know, so much, Bell Hooks has shaped so much of who I was as a like as a very young feminist and is someone whose ideas I think are so important, so well laid out. So just, you know, um, so succinct and also just like 
to the cut to the core of what it is that we're saying when we talk about feminism. And so it was interesting that I had read this book, but not really thought about it, um, you know, in, um, in, in, in my practice really. And so our producer, um, our associate producer for the podcast, Jordan Bailey recommended it to me like a couple of, um, a couple of months ago. And I was really curious, you know, about what her experience reading it was. And when I went back, I think that I had just not really internalized this message that Bell Hooks was was saying about pushing back against injustice in, um, you know, in a way that is really forceful and that is grounded in love. And, um, and you know, and probably like they always say, like, you're, you, you hear the message when you're ready to hear it. So I think that there is something about whatever is happening in this moment where that is resonating for me so much. And so it's been, you know, I, so much of this podcast has been just talking about things that we are revisiting. This is another good, um, it's another good book to revisit. And Anne, is it also your pick? It is. And I actually, um, you know, I had read this book a long time ago and really did feel expanded by it in a way that, you know, I mean, Bell Hooks has been foundational to my development um, as a feminist thinker um, because she is very deftly uh, accessible while also being um, extremely challenging and like mind expanding. And I think that, um, I mean, Atu's comment about um, coming to it in new ways at different times, like all incredible writers offer that opportunity and um, Bell Hooks is no different. And I'm positive now that it was top of mind for me because our producer, Jordan, um, recommended it in uh, one of our Call Your Girlfriend newsletters. And that's kind of why it clicked as an answer to this when you asked it. But um, it's true that it was um, pivotal in terms of how I think about feminism because I think I had this notion um, early on that it was all very kind of like concrete, hard stuff, you know, it's like, how are we changing, you know, policies to enshrine more rights? And like, what are we doing in a work context? And like, how are we pushing back against, you know, old ideas and about, about what women and men and gender mean that are enshrined by religion. And it all felt very kind of big systems. And this book rooted in love and emotion and the interpersonal um, and explaining how that is also connected to this very concrete political um, long-term fight was um, I think very challenging to me when I read it the first time and um, you know remains something that really shifted how I think about practicing feminism in this interpersonal way not just in terms of how I am voting or what I am advocating for on a policy level so this book was a real help to me in that department. And finally, before we go, I'd like you both to tell me about a woman that you admire. Um, Aminatu, do you want to start? I mean, you're you're probably going to laugh, but my answer is Anne Friedman all of the time. <laughs> and I, you know, and I like I promise that this is not a some sort of like lazy self-promotionary like um, answer. I I cannot tell you all of the ways that I have just like profoundly been changed by Anne and um, her generosity of ideas, her generosity of spirit, um, her writing, 
And I think that, you know, I will remove my friend from the, like, I will remove myself um, from the equation of being her friend, because I think that that is a, you know, that is a, that is truly the cherry on top of the, of the cake. But as someone who is just thinks really deeply about making the world that I live in a better place and, and holding my community to a higher standard than, than what, you know, the world says is, uh, is acceptable or is normal. And as someone that has just really profoundly shaped my ideas about what it means to be someone who lives a life with integrity, um, being someone who um, really challenges the systems that we are all a part of. And, um, you know, and also just someone who has challenged me a lot to think that change is possible, both on a systemic way, but also in a really personal way. And, um, you know, and I think that through so much of her writing and so much of the, all of the, the professional endeavors that she's really a part of, I think that I have also really understood that um, the things that women care about are important, you know, and that you can be your full self. You can be someone who, um, you know, is cares deeply about ideas and cares about, um, you know, being a smart, uh, intellectually rigorous person and balance that out with being someone who, um, who like cares a lot about culture and cares a lot about music and about art and about uplifting other people's voices. I think that she has just really shown me that it is possible to be someone who has a variety of interests and it doesn't mean that you're putting yourself in a box or that you are not a serious person about the work that you do. And, you know, and I think that also just, we celebrate, um, we celebrate like our female friends for a lot of things. And, you know, and it's a lot of times like those accomplishments are rooted in, in the more like personal or, um, you know, I think that like accomplishments for women generally will revolve around um, things like marriage or having children all great things, all great things. Um, shout out to the moms and shout out to the wives. I just have to say that like for me, having a friendship that is also rooted in a professional collaboration with someone has been, it's been really healing and it has been like also very mind expanding, knowing that we can be people who care about all of those things, but that our work is really, really important. And I have personally been changed by Anne's work and I appreciate that so much of her work is also pulling other people along with her. And, um, you know, and that's going to have a profound impact on me and my own work for, for years to come. So um, that's my cheesy answer to this question, but I mean it in all seriousness. <laughs> Stop it. Stop it. I'm, I, I, how am I supposed to answer this question now? <laughs> you better pick someone else. <laughs> <laughs> you're like my woman I admire is also Anne Friedman <laughs> yeah. um, oh my I god wouldn't have... that be the worst I would just fully deflate everything you said where I'm like I'm staring in the mirror staring in the mirror right now and looking at her like oh my god <laughs> listen she's a good pick she's a good pick oh. she's, she sounds amazing so we probably oh. should keep uh, pick her <laughs> uh, and you're in the horrible position of now having to follow that but <laughs> I'm sorry, um, but who do you admire? Listen, I feel confident in my choice. Um, and and I will preface this by saying that um, I find it impossible to answer a question about admiration like this and pick 
a total stranger or a public figure or someone who I have never met or whose work I have only observed. Because for me, um, like when I really look at behavior I want to emulate and traits that I admire, so much of that is uh, are things that happen when when the public eye is not on you or the things that you're doing when no one's looking, um, not because you want credit and not because it is part of your um you know, professional brief or whatever, but because you really believe it is the right thing to do. And this is how you want to conduct yourself as a human in the world. And who does that better than Aminatu So? Like truly no one. Um, I, I really feel very strongly that like, yes, I, um, I want to know what she thinks about everything. I, I truly think that as a public intellectual and as someone who um, is asking the right questions of the right people at the right time. Um, she has no equal, but I, but I really, you know, when it comes down to this question of admiration, the things that I admire are the way that she muddles through the, the difficulties of like, you know, owning a business in this moment, being a semi-public figure in this moment, um, intervening in really like huge systemic problems in a way that, um, make sense for her particular role and talents. And those are the kinds of things that she has really modeled for me that, you know, I mean, maybe people kind of get a glimpse of that from the outside, but um, I have felt really privileged to have a front row seat um, or maybe more accurately kind of like a co-pilot role at some moments in really watching someone live a life with intention. And um you know, I, I really do feel that, you know, everything that she said about me is something that I could and will say about her because, um, yeah, it is true that I am so privileged to have this insider's view of what's going on when other people are not paying attention in terms of how she's treating others and how she's living her beliefs. Ladies, it has been a real pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you so much. Um, and I think the admiration between the two of you is just, it's really lovely to see. So thank you very much for that. Thank you for listening. Our Shelf is brought to you by the team at Virago Press. Special thanks to today's guests, Amanatu So and Anne Friedman. Tune in next time for more conversation about books, feminism and culture. Thank you for listening. Our Shelves is brought to you by the team at Virago Press. Tune in next time for more conversation about books, feminism and culture. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.